Welcome to episode 22 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. Let's look at Where in the Money from 1935, starring Joan Blondell and Glenda Farrell, and directed by Wright and Wright for Warner Brothers. If I asked you to select your favorite pair of funny ladies in classic film, you might answer Anita Garvin and Marion Byron, or Thelma Todd and Zazu Pitts, or Thelma Todd and Patsy Kelly, or Marilyn Monroe and Jane Mansfield. But for my money, none of them can touch the sublime rapport that Joan Blundell and Glenda Farrell traded over the course of eight films together. As other critics have noted, they were a departure from the traditional rule of opposites that paired women who were not the same type. Joan and Glenda were more similar than different. It was what they shared that proved to audiences that two hot dames would be more likely to combine forces and be friends rather than enemies and God help any man in their vicinity who underestimated their wit and ambition. Lifelong friends, they radiate love for each other on screen, even when they're falling out in the plot. Their routines bear all the hallmarks of an improvised jazz duo. They riff, build tempo, and amplify each other. Sometimes Glenda stands behind Joan's shoulder like a snare drum or a horn section to give her friend a percolated beat. Then other times, Joan sounds like a stand-up double bass thrumming a steady rhythm, which Glenda picks up and then uses to sing out. They are simply musical in their orchestra of the sass-mouthed dame. Their bond, as deep as actual blood sisters, is as apparent on screen as the stylish hats and tailor suits that Ori Kelly designed for their characters. In their first film together, they share just one brief scene set in a girls' reformatory that establishes an accord that develops across their films in the 1930s. In Three on a Match from 1932, Joan Blondell's Mary, considered fast because she wore pink bloomers and cut classes to smoke with the boys, lands behind bars. Ever canny, Glenda Farrell guesses faster than the crack of whip I'll betcha a red herring against a case of pre-war scotch. It was some man that got you pushed in here. Well, don't sit around figuring the worst things you'd do to him if he was Mussolini. Just make up your mind not to get tangled up with man again. Any man. Glenda's wisdom, in a nutshell, echoes through every woman's picture set in a prison. Joan and Glenda join forces in the best of their films and shake the rafters. They only share one scene together in Traveling Sales Lady, but the image of them toasting their business acumen with champagne after they beat their male competitors in trade rates as the ultimate mood board image. Havana Widows was their first time paired off as a team, and you can't beat the economy of storytelling or how it established their box office clout together. Warners had the sense to leave them carry the picture and not put any men in, really, to distract or divert the story from our gimme girls. Kansas City Princess offers a manifesto for the modern gal survival guide. Glenda tells Joan, now get this and get this straight. A girl's got to have three things nowadays, jack, money, and dough. About time you learned it. Glenda's character tries to make her friend wise up to the way the world operates in Kansas City Princess. 
Do you want to live in a dump like this all your life? Look at your clothes. Look at them. You've never had more than two dresses to your name since I've known you. The best you can do is grab 10 cent tips from guys who smoke nickel cigars. Ain't you got any ambition? Joan's character replies, sure, maybe I'll marry dynamite. Over my corpus delecti, Glenda declares. I'd argue that Where in the Money from 1935 is their best picture together, even though it's flawed. Far too much time is taken away from them and devoted to well-worn sight gags from Hugh Herbert in a boat zooming around the harbor, driving recklessly, or playing with a stupid toy frog. It's like something at Warner's, some innate inner meanness, kept the studio from trusting the whole picture to the women. Trust me, viewers only want to see Joan and Glenda in every scene. Hugh Herbert and small doses only, please. Instead of playing the usual showgirls or gold diggers, this time they're process servers. They deliver court summons to unsuspecting recipients. In five set-piece scenes where they get the jump on an unsuspecting man to serve a subpoena, they are masterclass comedians. Accents, disguises, and their unassuming blonde locks open more doors than a safe cracker. Aspiring women in comedy should commit by taking notes. Glenda interrupts Joan's makeout session on a park bench with a chauffeur when the movie opens so that they can get to work. They pull up to an all-male club and barge inside. They pause long enough to find out where the man they're looking for is. He's in a hot box sauna in the locker room. Greeting the men they pass, without even enough blush between them to rouge a doll's cheek, they find the man and verify his identity as Mr. J.J. Wellington, publisher. He thinks it's his lucky day to have two hot blondes crowding his no-doubt walrus-like physique. Instead of giving him their phone number or address, they slap the court summons under his beak, and then out the door they go. Some version of this ruse serves them well for men who never see them coming. Their workaround succeeds where other men fail. When Hugh Herbert, as a lawyer, tries to convince them they have to deliver the remaining subpoenas in a breach of promise suits that's under the gun, he ushers in three men, bandaged and hobbling on broken limbs. While men with a court summons meet with violence, Joan and Glenda can slip under the radar and get the job done. The plot identifies a huge crisis in the gold digger economy, one that promises a bigger seismic shift than the crash on Wall Street. The Senate is about to pass a law which forbids breach of promise suits that awarded heart bomb to women who claimed a man strung them along with a false promise of marriage. The law did pass in the U.S. in 1935. Breach of promise figures prominently in many pre-code film plots, such as Paid from 1930, Breach of Promise 1932, Lawyer Man, also from 1932, Counselor at Law, 1933, Havana Widows, 1933, I'm No Angel, 1933, and The Girl from Zuri from 1934, just to name a few. A breach of promise suit was like winning the sweepstakes for women. It could make all the difference between an address in a cold water walk-up or a penthouse on Easy Street. They have two weeks to push Claire LeClaire's case through the system before the new law takes effect. Claire LeClaire, played by Anita Carey, storms the lawyer's office and demands satisfaction. In a mincing French accent, she hectors Hugh Herbert to ready the case. 
When he tries to fob off excuses, the woman in the stylish hat that looks like origami snaps out of her francophone dialect and snaps into sharp Brooklynese. Claire LeClaire says, listen, slug. Hugh Herbert says, you mean me? Me? Yeah, you, you chiseling shyster. I mean you. Quit trying to give Maisie the old stole a After Joan and Glenda trick him into the a promise of $1,000 payment to deliver the remaining subpoenas, then they resume the job. They repair to a nightclub and sit next to the dance floor. Joan bats her lashes at the house singer, a Phil Logan. His song goes on far too long, but when he finally shuts his trap, he invites Joan to the dance floor and introduces her to the crowd. She affects a sly demeanor. She looks down at her feet and uh, swings her legs around. He asks if she works. Of course not. I'm a home girl, she says with wide eyes. Her aw shucks routine lulls him into a complacency so deep she could have slugged him with a ball-peen hammer and sent him off to a slaughterhouse. Instead, she attaches the summons to a bouquet to look like a love note. Played for a sucker, he can't lose his temper in front of an audience. Perhaps most delicious among the gags is the one they pull to try to get at a professional wrestler before a match. They trot out southern drawls as thick as molasses. It makes you wonder if that's the voice Joan Blondell used to win the beauty pageant as Miss Dallas in 1926, when she was really just passing through, but the judges mistook her for a daughter of the South. Other Blondell highlights include the angry eating sound she makes as she devours a sandwich while supposedly on hunger strike after a dude kidnaps her. And then when she beans him on the head and knocks him cold with a vase she throws from across the room. Home run, Joni. Ori Kelly always outfitted Joan and Glenda in enviable clothes worthy of gals with tickets punched bigger and better on them. Joan has one outfit in crepe de chine with a tartan bow in the center that is drool-worthy as anything she's ever worn on screen. Ori Kelly's daywear always sports interesting folds, oversized buttons, and smart hats. How could you not feel suited and booted in one of Ori Kelly's designs? The only man in the cast who doesn't need to be glassed is Lionel Stander as Leonidas Giovanni Butch Gonzola. If you collect Depression-era gangster accents, this one deserves appreciation. He pronounces words like subpini and verbatim with abandon. If you are a man in a Joan and Glenda picture, aim for complete dimwit easily fooled. Stay in your lane, fellows. Although Joan is best remembered for her Busby Berkeley musicals and pairing with James Cagney, and Glenda Farrell is best known for the Torchy Blaine series or playing a gangster's mall, the pictures that they made together give us something we are absolutely starved for today. Women who experience more meaningful relationships with each other rather than with men. They have fun and adventure and raise each other high at every turn. You would no more see them fight over a man than you would see them take candy from a baby or steal from the poor box. They may have been gold diggers, but they had a moral code that buoyed them above the bloodthirsty rogues gallery of the men and warners. In 1936, Joan Blundell wrote an article for Hollywood Magazine that I'd like to share. It's called My Pal Glenda. No one would be able to enjoy a case of the blues with Glenda around. She would start to console you, and before you realized it, you'd be laughing, and it wouldn't be because Glenda had made an effort to amuse you. She just can't help being funny. 
That's one of the many reasons why she is so delightful to work with. Never a dull moment. She is a comedian by accident rather than design, for no matter how serious she takes her work before the camera, the finished product plays havoc with your funny bone. Working with Glenda is splendid for me, but hardly fair to her. You see, I am starred, which means that I have the love interest and also share the comedy with her. In most pictures where two girls work together, one plays the sweet ingenue and the other the comedian or villainess, and in that way, one does not take from the other. Glenda and I do the same type of role, which means that she must share her honors with me. With most girls, such a state of affairs would just not work. They would want their honors all to themselves. Not so with Glenda. In fact, she goes to the other extreme to build me up in my comedy. Glenda is at all times very natural. She isn't one bit camera conscious, doesn't know a good angle from a bad one, and works just as hard with her back to the camera as facing it. Her movements are always quick, her speech spontaneous. When she goes into a scene, she never follows the script to the sacrifice of her naturalness. She acts just as she would in the same situation if it arose in everyday life. In other words, she suits the part to her personality instead of trying to suit her personality to the script. She handles dialogue the same way and never tries to twist her tongue around expressions foreign to her own way of speaking. Before we go into a scene, we go over our lines together and revise them without changing their meaning until they fit our mouths. Then, just as likely as not, when the camera starts grinding, Glenda will come out with some expression entirely her own, which means that I have to ad-lib back and do it pretty quickly, or the scene will die on us. Glenda is like James Cagney in that respect. She's a trooper from A to Z and can troop with the best of them and never let a scene slow up. She is the fastest thinker I have ever known. She can have a dozen things on her mind at the same time and not get them balled up. Her body keeps up with her mind. She moves swiftly and accurately and makes every move count. I am always conscious of this when we go shopping together. She can buy six complete outfits with hats, shoes, gloves, purses, and all the other accessories to match while I'm making up my mind what I do want. And when we start any place, Glenda is all ready. She never has to run back for her keys or her checkbook or give the cook last-minute orders. Glenda recently purchased an old Spanish house in North Hollywood. It was substantially built and the grounds were lovely, but the house wasn't one bit attractive. Glenda walked through it, talking as she went. I'll knock out that wall and build on a bedroom, which will open out into the patio. I'll take that closet out and put in bookshelves. The fireplace is clumsy. It will have to be rebuilt. It's rather dark in the living room. French windows would end that. There's plenty of room over there for a playroom, etc. She did all that, and you should see the place now. The minute you step into her home, you realize that it's a home of a woman. It's all done in delicate shades of rose, green, blue, gold, and white, yet it isn't fussy and frilly. Glenda is forever doing thoughtful things for others, and she seems instinctively to know just when to do it and how. My baby was two weeks late in arriving. Every morbid thought that could visit an expectant mother made a devil's holiday in my mind. Reporters called daily to ask about the blessed event. Friends called, and while they meant well, they sympathized and worried with me and made me all the more morbid. I decided not to have callers, not even to answer the telephone. 
One evening, it rang so persistently that I did answer. It was Glenda. She didn't even ask me how I felt, just blithely said, I'm having a few friends in, and I want you and George to come over. I began making excuses, but she overruled them, and in a few minutes, I was gaily calling to George and announcing that we were going out. I had been so blue that I must have taken him by surprise, but he fell in with my spirits, and in no time, I was laughing and having the best time at Glenda's house. I don't know whether Glenda had cautioned her other friends or not, but there was no mention of babies, mothers, doctors, or hospitals. I was still glowingly happy early the next morning when I was taken to the hospital. God bless Glenda. Thanks very much for listening. You can find this film, Where in the Money, on the Russian website that I've told you about before. You can stream it online at ok.ru slash video slash 285-019-146-894. Thanks for listening. Join me next time for episode 23 when I look at One Desire from 1955 starring Ann Baxter.